a few years ago, my wife introduced me to an app that you can download on your phone called Waze. It's a directional app that Yep, so if you're familiar with it, there's other variations of it, but there's nothing more certain than ways I can let you know of that. So I'm from the Dallas-Fort Worth area. I feel like I know the town pretty well, and I was also born a male, which means I always think I know where I'm going and how I'm going to get there. And by God's grace, he's provided a suitable helper who has reminded me that I don't always know how I'm going to get somewhere. But this directional app is quite fascinating because all you have to do is plug in the address and no matter what time of day it is, no matter where your location is, this app gets you to where you need to go. And it even actually introduces you to roads that you didn't even know existed, just I didn't know that. I'm confessing that before you. What is amazing about this app is the certainty in which it provides. It is a certain app. If I leave today I'm, and I'm going to North Dallas and I plug in an address, it's going to get me there. It's pretty great. Well, in a much deeper, a much more real way, the Word of God through the Apostle Peter today sets a certainty before us as brothers and sisters in Christ, those who believe upon the resurrected Lord and the crucifixion, death, burial, and resurrection, we have a certainty that Christ is going to come again. A certainty. And so my prayer, as has been my prayer all week in preparation through this word, is for the word to remind us of the certainty that we have in the midst of our lives and that our hearts would be encouraged by the preaching of the word today that would move forward and the spirit would do its work. Let me read over us the text. We are in the book of 2 Peter, chapter 1, and we will finish chapter 1 today. This is what the word of the Lord says. For we do not follow cleverly devised myths when we made known to you the power and coming of our Lord Jesus Christ, but we were eyewitnesses of his majesty. For when he received honor and glory from God the Father, and the voice was borne to him by the majestic glory, this is my beloved Son, with whom I am well pleased, we ourselves heard this voice Born from heaven, for we were with him on the holy mountain. And we have something more sure, the prophetic word, to which we will do well to pay attention as a lamp shining in a dark place until the day dawns and the morning star rises in your hearts. Knowing this first of all, that no prophecy of scripture comes from someone's own interpretation. For no prophecy was ever produced by the will of man, but men spoke from God as they were carried along by the Holy Spirit. Thus says the word of the Lord. I've titled this sermon, We Can Be Certain. We can be certain. Certain as you sit there and I stand here, we as the church can be certain. Specifically in this context, there are two primary things that we can be certain about. 
One, we can be certain that the Lord Jesus Christ is coming again. And secondly, we can be certain, as the text will show us in its expanse, that all the words spoken through the scriptures are true. They are true. We have here in its context, as Pastor Jared is going to preach much more thoroughly here in the next few weeks, that false teachers have infiltrated the church and they've, they've kind of honed in on one doctrinal issue. And that issue is, in fact, whether or not Jesus Christ is returning. Very quickly, look with me in chapter 3. Verse 4, and we see what they are saying. Where is the promise of his coming? They are challenging the very apostles' words who said that they knew that Jesus was coming. These false teachers had brought this in. Now, we have to be reminded first and foremost what Jared preached on last week, which Peter, in his attempt to stir up the church to live out godly lives, he places before them reminder, reminder, reminder to consider all these things that are true in the Lord Jesus. And the coming of the Lord is front of mind for Peter. He wants the church to know that, in fact, Christ is coming, which should, in fact, affect the way that we live our life today. We must remember exactly who he is in the knowledge of the Lord Jesus Christ, as it says in chapter 1, verse 3, and remember how we can be certain of these things. We see in verse 16, there's a conjunction there. It's the word for, it's gar in the Greek, which simply means this. It's explaining what the previous text already said. It's a, it's a bridge to how we can be reminded of what stirs us up into living godly lives. And he's going to provide for us some sources to trust. These false teachers, as you can see there, right there in verse 14, or verse 16, are claiming that the apostles had uh, invented cleverly devised myths when they spoke these things to the church. They were accusing them of creating stories and fables for their own benefit. We don't know the scope of their skepticism, but we do know that their skepticism was a direct attempt at the word that the apostles were speaking to the church. They were attempting to shake the foundation. So the question that we must ask is this. How can we know and be sure that the sources that we have are true? If we had a, a main point in this sermon, something to kind of wrestle with throughout, the question that I want to ask is this. How can we be certain? And God has provided a main point for us to consider. God has provided reliable sources that affirm Christ's return, which is meant to remind and compel Christians to live godly lives as we await. And we would do well to pay attention to what he conveys. Peter provides two rock-solid things. These are rock-solid remembrances to edify the church into godly living, and to serve as a counter to the false teaching of the day. And 
Just as scoffers were coming in their day, scoffers in our day as well, asking us, when is the return of Christ coming? So just as the text provides sources for those who were in the church then, the sources are, are, are meant also to encourage us in our own heart today as the church, as we await his coming. These two certain provisions for remembering provide us a greater understanding of the knowledge of Christ the very means by which we grow in godliness. The first one is this. We can be certain of the truths of the gospel because we have the apostolic eyewitnesses given to us. We can be true, number one. We can be certain, number one, of the truths of Scripture because we have the apostolic eyewitnesses. Look with me after Peter's rebuttal that they did not create cleverly devised myths when they made known to the church the power and coming of the Lord Jesus Christ. I'm going to continue reading here. But we were eyewitnesses of his majesty. For when he received honor and glory from God the Father, and the voice was borne to him by the majestic glory, this is my beloved son, with whom I am well pleased, we ourselves heard this voice born from heaven, for we were with him on the holy mountain." It's important for us to allow Scripture to interpret Scripture in this context. What is it that Peter is referring to? He is referring to an event that took place, and it flies right into the face of what the false teachers were accusing them of doing. If you have uh, your Bibles, hold your place in 2 Peter and turn with me to Matthew chapter 17. We are going to be in verses 1 through 8 for a few minutes. This, this event that Peter is referring to is known as the Mount of Transfiguration. It is testified to in all three of the synoptic gospels, Matthew, Mark, and Luke, and all of those accounts are very, very similar. Peter takes them to this account to show them with certainty that they, what they are accusing the apostles of cannot be true. And we'll see how that works itself out here, here in this passage. Look with me in verse 1. After six days, Jesus took with him Peter, James, and John, his brother, and led them up a high mountain by themselves. And he was transfigured before them. And his face shone like the sun, and his clothes became white as light. And behold, there appeared to them Moses and Elijah, talking with them. And Peter said to Jesus, Lord, it is good that we are here. If you wish, I will make three tents here, one for you and one for Moses and one for Elijah. He was still speaking when, behold, a bright cloud overshadowed them, and a voice from the cloud said, This is my beloved Son, with whom I am well pleased. Listen to him. When the disciples heard this, they fell on their faces, and they were terrified. But Jesus came and touched them, saying, Rise, and have no fear. And when they lifted up their eyes, they saw no one but Jesus only. Incredible. An incredible moment, no doubt, in the history of the biblical narrative. We see in 2 Peter chapter 1 
that Peter, specifically, as well as James and John, were eyewitnesses of this incredible encounter on the Mount of Transfiguration. We see in the text that he says we were eyewitnesses of his majesty. We're going to get into what majesty means here in just a minute, but have you ever talked to someone who is an eyewitness in a major event? It really is helpful in filling in areas that you cannot see in and of yourself. I remember when we lived in Raleigh, North Carolina, my wife and I were out to dinner with uh, some people from work that she was working with, and one of the friends there was a former member of the fire department in New York City during 9-11. And his description of that day was incredible. What, what things smelled like, noises, the terror in people, the moment, it was weighty and it was heavy and it was filling in things for me and my wife that we could not otherwise find in a documentary. In a more real way, Peter is an eyewitness to this marvelous event of Jesus's majesty. And we say majesty here to refer specifically to Jesus's deity. Remember what the text said, that his face shone like the sun. His clothes were dazzling white. The book of Mark, the same account, adds the description that no bleach in the world could make them this white. Which, by the way, did anybody know that bleach existed 2,000 years ago? That was an encounter for me in the text this morning. But nothing about it was human. We know, according to the scriptures, that Jesus, the first time he comes, comes as the suffering servant. We know that when Jesus comes again, he's going to come again as the King of kings and the Lord of lords, riding a white horse, arrayed in all of his splendor. So what we see here transpiring on the Mount of Transfiguration is a preview of what Jesus is going to look like when he returns as the King of Kings and the Lord of Lords. Standing before him, we have Moses. Moses is representing the law the full embodiment of the law. And over here, we have Elijah, who is representing the prophets. And before them, Jesus, his face and his body is transfigured, pointing to the, the majesty that is him, the one who fulfills both the law and the one who fulfills the prophets. And standing behind him, they have those who will one day be the apostles. What an incredible moment taking place. And Peter's saying, I was there, I saw it. And I know these scoffers are saying that the second coming is not going to happen. I'm telling you that is, it is going to happen because I saw it with my own eyes. And that's why he says in verse 16, power and coming of the Lord Jesus Christ. Power, dunamis, means by its very nature something that re resides in someone. With virtue and honor, the essence of a being the power of the Christ. 
we see the other word coming, parousia. This word means 17 times in the New Testament. It refers to the second coming of the Lord Jesus Christ. And as Jared's going to unpack here in the few weeks, the day of the Lord is a sure theme taking place inside this scripture. We know that when Peter says the power and coming of the Lord Jesus Christ, he is talking about what it looks like to see what Jesus is going to look like when he comes back. He saw it. He saw it. Unbelievable. We know in, in the Greek context that parousia means visitation, being visited by a ruler or a king. This would be something understood by the readers what was transpiring? Another example that this is the doctrine that the false teachers were specifically attacking. He was seeing a preview of the very thing that you and I today hope for, and that is the return of the king. He saw it. But he was not just an eyewitness. He was also an ear witness. Notice with me what it says in verse 17. For when he received honor and glory from God the Father... And the voice was born to him by the majestic glory. This is my beloved son with whom I am well pleased. We ourselves heard the voice. Can you imagine? From heaven. For we were with him on the holy mountain. He saw Christ arrayed in all of his glory. He heard the voice of the Father who is, who is the, the majestic on high, the majesty on high, which is another name for God himself, who is bestowing all honor and glory onto the Son in this moment. And Peter saw it and he heard it. What a powerful moment Majestic on high, the one whom all majesty, glory, and honor belongs to is bestowing all majesty, glory, and honor on the only Son. He exalted him in his right status. He glorified him with his splendor and his radiance. He showed the world who Christ is for a brief moment. It's interesting that the Father who has majesty, glory, and honor to himself is bestowing it upon the Son, and he is saying, this is the one whom I am pleased with. He is the satisfaction of the eternal God for all of creation. He is satisfied fully in him, the first affection of the Father. This is my Son, my beloved, is what he is saying. Look at him. Listen to him. This is the one that I promised when everything went awry in Genesis chapter 3. He's here. Notice him. It's interesting, and this is just an implication before we continue on in our text. If God the Father, who all majesty, honor, and glory belongs, is bestowing all majesty, glory, and honor unto the Son of Man, then we who are not the majestic glory ought to do the very same. In everything that we do, in everything that we say, all the time, because as we will see, everything is about this one. Now notice, Peter emphasizes something in his transition. Look with me in verse 19. And we have something more sure, the prophetic word 
we have something more sure, the prophetic word. The second way that we can be certain as the church that Jesus Christ is coming again is because we have the prophetic word that has been given to us. And Peter says that it's more sure. Now, if we were to kind of dissect our culture today, we would recognize that truth uh, or reality is defined by our experience in this postmodern world that we live in. What's true for me is true for me. What's true for you is true for you. And Peter is arguing against that very sentiment. He is saying there's something more sure, a word, a prophetic word, and it's been given to us. Now, I grew up as a little church boy, emphasis on the little, and uh, we would go to these, you know, summer camps every year, and I would have, like, these incredible encounters with God. I mean, I'm just, I mean, lifting my hands up, worshiping the one who created the day of worship, and I believe that those were real events, uh, no, no doubt about it. But by Thursday the following week, I'm punching my brother a lot. I'm not saying that experiences are bad. I think they're very good. In fact, God has made us to be people who have emotions and responses and desire worship. But if that is what we long for, an emotional experience, a worship experience, and that's all, we're going to continue to kind of ride valleys and mountains. For Peter says there's something more sure. Now, let's put in context here. There is no worship experience that any person could have ever had that would come close to Peter's worship experience on the Mount of Transfiguration. None of us. There is not some concert that has ever existed in all of human history in which our emotions can be so invoked by worship that they would rival the transfiguration. And the one who experienced it said there's something more sure. The prophetic word. There is something more sure that has come. Now what Peter is not saying is that the prophetic word is more sure than the transfiguration itself. The transfiguration testifies to the word, and the word testifies to the transfiguration. But what he's saying is, you don't take my experience. If my experience is not enough, let me tell you there's something more sure that legitimizes my experience, and that's the word. And you do well to pay attention to it. Now, in one sense, Peter had already seen Scripture's fulfillment of all the things that were promised in the Old Testament about the coming of the Son. We see in Daniel 7, a description of the coming of the Son. And Peter, in one sense, saw that prophecy fulfilled right before his eyes by saying, and I was eyewitnesses of his majesty. But we're going to get into here with certainty why he is saying these things in particular. Now look with me in verse 20. We're actually going to finish in verse 19. We're just going to do some gymnastics in the text this morning. But look in verse 20. It's 
provides the rationale behind what he's saying. Knowing this, first of all, that no prophecy of scriptures comes from someone's own interpretation. For no prophecy was ever produced by the will of man. But men spoke from God as they were carried along by the Holy Spirit. Now, when he says no prophecy, he expands the prophetic words that he is talking about, moving it from just focusing on the parousia, the return of Christ, and saying any word that is spoken in the Old Testament scriptures that testifies to all things that are culminating in Jesus, they cannot be devised by man. Man cannot interpret these things on his own. So the scope of the prophetic word in the text itself is referring to all of the Old Testament scriptures that talk about the king, that talk about Christ, that talk about the one who is to come. But notice the emphasis. No prophecy of scripture comes from someone's own interpretation. No prophecy was ever produced by the will of man. Remember the accusation in verse 16, that you came up with cleverly devised myths. He's saying, we didn't come up with cleverly devised myths. This is impossible for man to do regarding the things of God. And not only can we not come up with them, we can't actually even interpret them rightly. God is something other. His revelation is different than the revelation of man. The very thing that the false teachers were saying that the apostles were doing by creating things is the very thing that Peter is flying in their face by saying, you can't create this. This is by God and God alone. We have common throughout our day today uh, sayings like this, well, that's just your own interpretation. Well, yes, there are things that we can certainly work through and may disagree on, but principally in Scripture, God has revealed truths that are the anchor of the very gospel that we hold to. And we do not walk from the left or to the right from those truths. We interpret them rightly, and they're there to be interpreted rightly. He has revealed them to be interpreted rightly. As one faithful brother reminded me this week of something that R.C. Sproul said, God does not give you the freedom to misinterpret the word. So man cannot come up with these things on his own, and that is really good news for us. Really good news for us. Can we be guilty of this? Absolutely. And we need to recognize this. We need to recognize that we can be guilty of this. Uh, whether it's a small devotional in the morning and we're in a way that we're trying to bend the text to meet some need that maybe the text isn't actually communicating. Or if you're a small group leader or a Bible study teacher and you ask a question like, what do you think this text says? And everybody gives their opinion, and there's no kind of discriminating against what other people are saying. Or a pastor who has an agenda, who's bringing forward what he wants the word to say. All of these ways uh, are ways that men can, and women can unravel the scriptures themselves. And Peter's saying we cannot do that. We have something more sure, the prophetic word. So where do the scriptures come from? 
That's the question. If they do not come from man, where do the scriptures come from? Well, Peter gives us the answer in the second part of verse 21. But men spoke from God as they were carried along by the Holy Spirit. From God himself, the scriptures come. Peter identifies God, the Holy Spirit, as the author, the origin, and the source of the Holy Scriptures. And notice the description. Men were carried along by the Holy Spirit. It kind of presents an imagery of like a sailboat uh, who can't go, a sailboat cannot go anywhere without wind. The wind comes and takes the sailboat in the direction that the wind wants to take it. That's an image of how God works through the, as it says in verse 21, men spoke from God these things. He carried them along the same way that wind carries along a boat. They didn't, he didn't possess them. He inspired them. He used their context their personalities, their place in the biblical narrative to speak forth God's truth, whatever God wanted them to say. And Peter's saying, I've seen it and I know it because I've seen it and we can be sure of it. It's an incredible assurance what he is speaking forward. We know that all the promises of the scriptures have found their yes in him. It's what, Peter, or it's what Paul says in 2 Corinthians 1.20. Essentially, Peter is saying a very similar thing. We must recognize, church, that God's word is inspired by God. We must recognize that Jesus himself believed these scriptures. Jesus himself considered them to be true and reliable. As Jared preached on Easter Sunday from Luke chapter 24, verses 44 through 45, this is what Jesus says about the Old Testament scriptures. These are my words that I spoke to you while I was with you, that everything written about me in the law of Moses and the prophets and the Psalms must be fulfilled. Then he opened, this is great, then he opened their mind. Uh, no prophecy can be produced by the will of man. No prophecy of scripture comes from someone's own interpretation. But Jesus opened up their minds to understand the scriptures. We can be certain of what they contain. The way he did. We do not live on bread alone, but by every word that comes forth from the mouth of God. This is what the Bible says of itself. I will put my words in his mouth and he shall speak to them all that I command him. Deuteronomy 18, 18, referring to something that Christ will fulfill. 2 Samuel 23, verse two. These are David's last words that are recorded in the, in the scriptures. The spirit of the Lord spoke by me and his word was on my tongue. This is what God says to Isaiah recorded in uh, chapter 59. My words that I have put in your mouth Zechariah 7, the words which the Lord of hosts has sent by his spirit through the former prophets. Acts chapter 4, God who said, who said by the Holy Spirit through the mouth of our father David. 2 Timothy chapter 3, all scripture is breathed out by God and profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, and for training in righteousness. 
that the man of God may be complete, equipped for every good work. They can scoff all they want, but what the word says stands as true, and it's more true than anything that we've experienced because it's older than the sun. It's more certain than the sun will rise tomorrow is the word of God as a lamp unto our feet and a light unto our path. It is stable and steadfast. We can trust it. Over 3,000 times in the scriptures are the words, the word of God, word from the Lord, thus says the Lord, it is written over 3,000 times. This is not produced by man. These are not crazy myths. These are not things that bring uncertainty. This brings assuredness, steadfastness. It increases our faith all carried along by the Holy Spirit of God who does his work. As we wrap up, I want us to see the one imperative that the scripture gives. Look with me in verse 19. To which you will do well, referring to the prophetic word, to pay attention. Church, that's to us. We will do well to pay attention exactly to what the word of God says. You remember what was uh, said at the Mount of Transfiguration, this is my beloved son with whom I'm well pleased. Listen to him. And then Peter gives the exact type of imperative, pay attention to the one who embodies everything that is fulfilled in this prophetic word. And then they use beautiful poetic language until the day dawns, which refers to the parousia, the, the return of Christ rising, the sun rising out of darkness, and morning star rises in our own hearts. That's the personal application from the text. We feast on this word until we believe the word and it rises up in our hearts. So how do we do this? How do we pay close attention? All of this, Peter's getting them to see that you can believe these things, you can remember these things, these certain things. I have seen it, we have something more sure, so pay attention to these things. He's looking at the second coming as the motivation that he's coming again, the very thing that the false prophets were not looking at, which is probably why they were living in sin. Look at these things. Well, first and foremost, church, we can rest assured. We can rest assured that the word of God is certain. It is stable and is steadfast. From Psalm 119, as Jared has already read, it is certain. Therefore, we can embrace what it says. We can follow what the word says. And we get to do this because the spirit carries us along in gratitude and in splendor of everything that this text reveals. Everything. We're able to do this. We view the scripture as authority, which is something that the false teachers despised authority in chapter two. We consider it a joy to submit to the revelation of the scripture because it is our authority, because it testifies to the one who is the king of kings and the Lord of lords. So here's a question that I have as we consider how do we do this. Are you interested in the scriptures? Are you interested in the scriptures? Do you love the scriptures? I didn't ask, do you think the scriptures are true? Do you love them? 
Are you satisfied in them and all that they testify to? If you are not, then let's pray. Because it is an overflowing gift given to us each and every single morning. Pray that God would change your desires to fall in love with his revealed word. And the same spirit that carried along these men to write it will stir up in your heart, as Peter says, all that is true of the knowledge of the Lord Jesus Christ. And as a faithful member of our preaching team reminded me of this week in Jeremiah 15, let's pray and let's linger in the text. Jeremiah found the word Jeremiah 15, 16, he devoured the word and then it became to him a joy and a delight. Sometimes we operate like we gotta love something before we do it. Sit in it, linger in it, do the hard work, let the hard work be done on you. Feast on it and it will become your delight. And we can echo the psalmist in chapter one who's laying in bed and he's just delighting in the law of the Lord. He can't get enough of it. My question is, do you also know how to read the scripture? We are attempting to provide resources in everything that we are producing from ABF leader guides to family worship guides to D group guides that focus on how do we approach the text? How do we, how do we interpret rightly the word of God? Because it can't be left up to our own interpretation. Most people approach the word of God by saying, well, what do I get out of this? Every morning, right? What does this have to do for me? Well, what can I get out of this that's, that's gonna help me today? Man, the, the guides that we are providing just include the inductive Bible study method, which is this. What is this text saying about God? What is it saying about sin? What is it saying about Christ and redemption in the church? Helpful things that allow us to interpret the scriptures rightly. If, if you're struggling in the word of God, please come and talk to us. Come and knock on our doors, our pastor's doors, leader's doors. Sit and, and, and linger in the word. Learn how to study the word of God. Because it's life. It's giving. It's wonderful. This is why it's our first aim, aim one, to know the word of God. We want to know the word of God so that we can produce disciples in this church. It all ties back to exactly what the word of God says so that we can do this. If these are things that you're struggling in, that is okay. It's totally understandable. But come, Let's get help. Let's walk in these things so that we can know the word of God together. And lastly, it's never to be just interpreted individually. It's to be interpreted in community. We have one another to where we can sit together in our small groups and in our ABFs and we can actually wrestle with what the word of God is saying. Like it says in Isaiah 66 too, those who tremble at my word, all of us should approach the the text with a trembling of trying to make sure we understand what it says because we know that we arrive at what it says. It's going to feed our souls and it's gonna give us hope for everything that we have in Christ, a certainty that is there. Let me read this in our closing. It comes from Hebrews chapter one, one through three, and it is the gospel. 
The scriptures are important because they reveal the gospel. The very hope that we have as we are here this morning. The writer of Hebrews says this, Long ago in many times and in many ways, God spoke to our fathers by the prophets. But in these last days, he has spoken to us by his son, whom he appointed the heir of all things, through whom also he created the world. He is the radiance of the glory of God and the exact imprint of his nature, and he upholds the universe by the word of his power. After making purifications for sins by dying on the cross, he sat down at the right hand of the majesty on high. The reason that the scriptures are so important and it's the reason that we have hope in the scriptures, the certainty that it provides is because it all points to Jesus. Recognize that Jesus is the center of the transfiguration. Recognize he is the embodiment of the law and the prophets and the affection of the Father. This is my beloved Son with whom I am well pleased. Jesus is the topic of the prophets and he is the affection of the apostles. And he is coming again. We can be sure of it. We can be certain of it. If you don't know this Jesus, we plead with you that you would. He brings forth life, life everlasting. He raises dead people to live again. And you know how I know that? I'm an eyewitness in my own life. I know he has changed my mind and my heart and it's testified in his word. It's not just some myth, it's not some fable. It's true. If you don't know Christ, we're gonna have some pastors here at the front here. Come and talk to them. We want to talk to you. We want to share with you what this scripture says. If you are a Christian and you do walk with Christ, take heart. Our Lord has overcome the world and he's coming again. And we know that he is. May we be a church that eats this word, devours this word, and may it be our joy and our delight. If you could close your eyes, every head bowed, every eye closed. We're gonna have a time of response. I'm gonna pray for us, for the spirit to move in our time of response. Pray that Christ would be glorified. Father, we do come before you and we're thankful. We are beyond thankful for everything that was accomplished through our risen Lord. I'm grateful for the apostolic eyewitnesses that give testimony to this. Father, we're grateful for the prophetic word that is even more sure. May this impact every part of every single day of our life. May we eat it, devour it, hold to it, Father, not in our flesh, but driven along by the Holy Spirit. Father, work and move and have your way with us. We pray these things in the name of Christ. Amen.